There is now, brothers and sisters in Christ, who is time to go out in prayer and as we prepare to hear the preaching of God's word. And let's pray. Sovereign Father, we come in this time knowing, O oh God, that you speak your words of truth and light through your word. We ask, O oh God, that the Holy Spirit illumine our hearts and minds, cause us to see treasure of the truth of the word. Cause the word of God to penetrate into our hearts, change our hearts through your word, so that we may walk in the way of Jesus Christ your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now this morning I continue in the sermon series taken from the book of Acts, uh, namely Acts 13 verse 1 to 12. So uh, allow me first to read the passage before going into the sermon proper. Verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manai, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, fool of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked? the straight paths of the Lord. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by their hand. Then the poor also believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks. Now we've gone through much of the book of Acts. We've reflected at length how the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is in line with the mission mandate of the ascended Lord Jesus for the early church, namely that they would have to be witnesses of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. 
we've reflected also at that as to how the Holy Spirit not only brings about conviction, but also brings about reconciliation. As the gospel now is pushing the boundaries of the differences and tensions between different cultures, different races, different languages, we see that now, finally in Acts chapter 13, that the gospel now is moving to the West. And especially now, it would include people who have had no connection to the first century Judaism, whether as God-fearers or, or, or at least as proselytes. Uh, and this is exemplified actually in the proconsul, uh, this man called Sergius Paulus. Yeah? So we see that now the church, not just in Jerusalem anymore, but the church at Antioch, this church will be last visited, uh, known not only for it being in, in, in a very thriving city, but one which was uh, full and diversity, people from different, different groups, uh, a very prominent uh, Roman settlement actually. We see that this church now begins not to take center stage, but becomes more prominent in the ministry. And particularly, we see here, they actually set Paul on his first missionary journey to the West. And this is where we're at right now. And so we want to have some reflections on these 12 verses in chapter 13 to reflect on the work of the Holy Spirit, to reflect on the context of the mission, and to reflect on how the church is to actually experience the work of the Holy Spirit today, understand the mission today, the dynamics of mission, even in these times. Okay? Now, it begins with this acknowledgement of how the church at Antioch is not only diverse, but also gifted. Therefore, they are not only uh, suitable for this uh, catalyst example of mission towards the Gentiles, but they are people who are not just people of circumstances, but people who are used by God and the Spirit. We see this very clearly in the opening verse of chapter 13. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Well, these prophets and teachers have included Barnabas. We've heard a lot about him. We've heard how he actually sought Saul out from Tarsus and brought him to minister uh, in, in the church of Antioch and bidding, whereby many people became disciples. And it was an Antioch again. The church were called Christians. It is this Barnabas who is called the son of encouragement, who is the one who accompanies Paul, as we will see very soon, on his first missionary journey. He is a man full of the Spirit. He is a man full of exaltation and encouragement. He is a man who is gifted in the Holy Spirit, be as a prophet or teacher. Now, alongside him, we have people uh, like Simeon, who was called Niger. And actually, the word Niger in Latin literally means one who is dark skinned. So, this alludes to what I was saying earlier that the church in Antioch was diverse, not, not just of one uh, race, one people group. But you had Barnabas who was from Cyprus, he was going to go back to Cyprus pretty soon. You had Syrian who was from, from uh, just the African continent. We had Lucius of Cyrene, okay, and, and, and then you had Manali, the lifelong friend of Hamlet, etc. Uh, interesting is that he has uh, affiliations with some very, very important people in the region further south in Judea as well. And then we have Saul. So these individuals operated in this multicultural church in the vocation of prophecy 
and teaching. And in the midst of their worshipping God, yeah, probably in the context of a, a prayer meeting or a service, as the, the literal word seems to suggest, actually, perhaps in the context of a literal service, as they were worshipping God and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to this community, the church at Antioch, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. I find it very significant that a church that was fairly young is also a church that sends people to do the work that God has already prepared for the likes of Barnabas and Saul. I find it also very meaningful that the church that is worshipping is a church that is led by the Spirit. We must never ever take for granted the essential expressions of the church. When we say that we want to be led by God in ministry, whether as a church or even small groups within the church, as families, as cell groups, as ministries, we need to first express this identity of worship. That we don't know about discerning or deciding or considering what our ministries are or what we need to do next as a church uh, on our own wisdom, on our own intellect, with our own cost and benefit analysis. We need to always, first and foremost, exemplify this posture of worship, of prayer, and fasting. It is always this heart that wants to seek after God intentionally that precedes God sending us to do His will. Are we a church that worships? And I don't just mean outwardly worship. Are we a church that actually exemplifies the heart of worship? And whether you're at home right now or wherever you are, as you follow from this service, that is not just a, a ritualistic habit whereby you follow through the liturgy in a simplified form uh, by memory, whereby you just listen to the sermon as information for you to, to consider whether there are values to be gained from it. But when you see this really wherever you are, despite the fact that you're not physically in the church, and even when you do come back to church, you see all these liturgical expressions of worship as truly coming from the heart to encounter God, to yield ourselves to Him. And it's in this context that the church at Antioch actually received the Holy Spirit's advice. They are really very gifted church, now moving in the prophetic, moving in the teaching, uh, the Holy Spirit is moving among them even to, to move the church, uh, to, to give to the, the church in Jerusalem as they anticipate a famine to come and then survive us, poor, and that, that is actually the end of the prophecy that we turn from the initiative. But we see, I find it meaningful that, that the church that is moving in the spirit is first and foremost described as a church that is worshipping. Uh, not the church is trying to, to plan its vision uh, by way of, of this intellectual discussion, by this, um, uh, even as strategic as it may be, vision casting. It has to be a leadership that is always worshipping. There are even be so bold as to ask you in your ministry meetings, in your PCC meetings, if you engage in time of worship or discerning the Lord or fasting. PCC, perhaps, for some of you. 
New Farms as a powerful change policy. New Farms is a very new Farms as a Bible study. New Farms. Why do we talk about fasting here? Because we talk about worshiping the Lord. It is actually about focus. And fasting is an act of deprivation to show that you are going to be focused on the Lord. And fasting shouldn't only therefore be part of the church life during the season of Lent. So this is actually, I don't know, any things that Christians do this. It's a common act of worship, uh, a regular one, something weekly for years ago. People are doing this because it is this intentional effort of saying symbolically that we are going to focus on the Lord to seek this will. We all know the will of God that we will is to go through His word. And yet, when we talk about the specific will of God in living out the principles of God, the kingdom of God, we see that this is exemplified here. The Holy Spirit says, in the context of their worship of God and fasting, He says, Set apart for me. Bounds and soul for the work to which I have called them. I remember um, several years ago, someone commented for this church that um, all saints and good church, at least in the last 15 years ago, so that was five, six years ago, that sent out many people for mission, whether in terms of uh, actually going out for mission work to different countries. Or we call the full-time ministry that goes to all the sense of mission. And, and at the same time, I always reflect on this and I realize that it's not really the church that sends them out. It is God who sends them out. It is God who puts the conviction in their heart, as the church leadership recognizes their, their vocation, their going from God, blesses them and releases them. And here we see that the church of Antioch actually does exactly that. As they fast and pray, having heard what the Holy Spirit has said. They laid their hands on them and sent them off. So two things here that we want to reflect on is that it is the Holy Spirit that calls each of us to particular vocations, to particular callings in our Christian witness. Um, therefore, there is really no element of saying that uh, I want to be a priest, for example, or I want to be involved in the mission to this and this vocation, or I want to be you may express those inclinations, those preferences, those aspirations, even. But at the end of the day, ultimately, it is really the Holy Spirit who has already preordained our callings, who has already set aside the ministry for us, waiting for us to respond in faith and obedience, not just the individualistic kind of calling, but one which involves the whole community of faith. My prayer is that our church will always be the opposite of this because God has always been doing that throughout the history of this parish, actually. So, not only just during my time since the late 90s that I witnessed, but even before, God has always been active in this parish in sending people out to do this work for mission, different different locations, different different capacities. When we are cognizant of that and we remind ourselves, therefore, that in our worship, we always want to seek God's specific will. In living out God's principles of the kingdom and so forth and so forth. And we are very, very intentional about that. When we see God say, do this, send that person, equip this individual, equip this family, support them, send them out, we have to do it in obedience. We want to fast and pray. And again, this is a regular expression of the church. 
fasting and praying that they discern the Lord's will. They want to make sure that there is no element of self-interest in terms of the building up of their own local institution, their own local church. There is this sense of mission and kingdom rightness that I'm sure accompanies this church as we have seen in the example right now. So after fasting and praying, they said they laid their hands on them. It's a sense of commissioning and sense of So this first aspect of this short passage is actually in the dynamic spirit, not only in revealing specific wills for the church, but in the church for the shape for the human body. And you see this dynamic of how the God reveals within the context of worship, the church needs to respond, even in that context of worship, with obedience and release. Obedience and release. Because there are so many people today in the world, even in this country, in this city, that don't know the gospel of Jesus. We have heard about Christianity, they may have heard about Jesus, but they have not encountered the gospel message. There we pray in the Parliament Church Council, coming to the Apostle of Worship, in your prayer, there we pray for God to send us out throughout the city, throughout this country. There we pray for God to reveal to us the specific way. Something that is a repent for everyone else. And worthy be obedient when he says, Go. You see the example of the church in Antioch is so straightforward. We see in verse 1, verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, he went out to Sumitia, took the boat from the port, and went to sail to Cyprus. When he arrived, some of us proclaimed the word of God and the synagogues of the Jews. And then, John verses them. So you see, firstly here, as they are on their way, Barnabas and Saul, they are, they are reminded again yeah, by, by Dr. Luke who writes this account. You see, not only the Holy Spirit who has called Barnabas and Saul, but it is the Holy Spirit that has now called children. So as they move with the blessing and the commission of the Holy Spirit, they now come to Cyprus. Uh, and as you would know by now, uh, even as we read through the book of, of Acts previously, we know that Paul, even though he's often still called Saul here, even though he's often called the apostle of the Gentiles, he actually never fails. Whenever he goes to a foreign country beyond the Antioch of Syria, he will always visit the synagogue of the Jews or a company of people who are Jews. Because God's gospel is to be revealed to everyone. Not at the expense of each other, whether they be Jews or Gentiles. So, even though we know that their mission here is indeed towards Gentile territory, nonetheless, they encounter Jews and they preach, they proclaim the word of God. And of course, we have John to assist them, serve alongside them in practical aspects. Now, they have gone through the whole island as far as that. So, they cut through actually from, from the starting point at the eastern part of the island. In Salamis, they cut through all the way to the western part of the island, which is Paphos, and they actually encountered a certain magician, a Jewish prophet called Bar Jesus. Now, interestingly, yeah, there are two things here that, that would be good for us to, to, to consider in reflection. That firstly, we know that it's not the first time that a magician is being mentioned in the book of Acts, isn't it? Uh, we know 
that uh, all the way back to Acts eight, there was another magician called Simon uh, in the city of Samaria, isn't it? And we have really dealt with how previously in the early sermons that this Simon uh, outwardly, say he's Christian, outwardly professes the faith, outwardly gets baptized, but actually we see that in his heart, his heart is corrupt and he seeks to manipulate Holy Spirit, that is something that can be bought. The Holy Spirit is a force manipulated by man. He is, of course, chastised by the Apostle Peter later on. We see now the second occasion of another magician, but one who is not of Samaria, one who is among the Jews. In fact, he is described as a Jewish false prophet, and quite literally in the Greek, they call it a Jewish pseudo prophet. So he is really someone who is recognized to be Jewish, involved in the Judaistic faith, and there is actually evidence in the first century for Judaistic religion to have syncretistic tendencies yeah, to mix this kind of pagan and occultic practices. So that may be a shocker for some of us who thought that uh, first century Judaism was almost about looking at the scriptures of the law and nothing else. But there is evidence for syncretism. Especially on the, on, on the Gentile island by Cyprus. And so this actually sets the tone for a confrontation. And therefore, there are two things that I want us to look back on here is that firstly, when we talk about doing mission for God, it all sounds really promising, really exciting, we're to hear God's specific will, to be commissioned by the church as the ways to send them on their way. It all sounds like a really beautiful and powerful experience. And it is. But it does not mean that there will not be any confrontation. Because this sets the scene for it. Because even as they go through the island, now they meet someone who is a magician. And therefore, um, for those of us who are in the 21st century, we always talk about magician as and someone who just does tricks and that is optical illusions. But the word magician here back then he is someone who dabbled in the occult, someone who was introducing worship of different spirits of manipulation, of subjecting people to bondage, using charms and things like that, of summoning the dead. It is actually very, very much more sinister, malicious, and dark. So a magician is only someone who plays tricks as we come to understand that term today. Even as a profession, so they set the tone that there is going to be spiritual warfare in the flesh in the person of this magician, this Jewish false prophet named Baal Jesus. And it could not be any more ironic that as the gospel talks about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the light of the world, who brings about forgiveness of sins, we are going to meet this person who is called Baal Jesus. And his ministry is against this gospel. And it's quite poetic because not only we see similarities of names here between the gospel preaching about Jesus and again now encountering against this uh, false prophet in Bar Jesus, we're going to find that one of the recipients who wants to hear more about the gospel is just Paulus. And we find that Saul is also called Paul. So it's quite poetic that as Jesus now is going to to defeat Bar Jesus, Paul now is going to minister to Sergius Paulus. Okay, so that, that is quite quite interesting uh, incidental coincidence, some would say. Now, who was this Bar Jesus? Well, it in verse 7, he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. 
remain intelligent. And so we find that the first thing we have noted earlier on in verse 6, that mission is not going to be without confrontation. We find the second thing here that mission also means that there is going to be this opportunity to work in the Holy Spirit to actually defeat darkness, to defeat things that distort the gospel. So there is this aspect, not only confrontation, but that of triumph. And so we see here in verse 7, he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. And now we see the confrontation, but Elimas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And this is precisely what I mean by, by those two overlapping points as we engage in the mission. We must not only expect there to be confrontation from the evil one, but we must also set and prepare ourselves to confront, to confront and drive away the works of the devil. And it is in this context for people seeking the truth. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't know about your experience, but many times when you want to preach the gospel, there will be opposition. There will be violent aggression, distractions. Just in any way trying to stop you or distort the way you preach the gospel. Because we are living in a realm of spiritual warfare. So it's not just about preaching the pulpit whereby you have troubles like this. Especially when you go to encounter someone, you go to visit someone, you go to minister to someone, especially in these times, you must recognize that all of our work in the name of Jesus for the gospel means different, different expressions, it's a form of mission. And it's in this context of mission that all will be weak in confrontation and opposition, but it becomes a moment of truth where we have to confront and find it away. And this is what happens to Saul because. Saul, as we see in verse 9, he was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, so you see, the Holy Spirit doesn't only reveal specific truths, his plans, doesn't only send church to mission, but the Holy Spirit also confronts and drives out the evil in spiritual warfare. And so, that's not in any way trying to think that this is Paul uh, using his proverbial rabbinic evil eye to gaze with all the religious and righteous anger. No, it's not about that. This is Saul, Paul, it's now called Paul in verse 9 onwards. This is now Paul, who's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's, he recognizes he's led by the Spirit, he's inspired by God to actually see through this man, to see through this man as being a minion of Satan himself. And that's why he says in verse 9, that he says, Saul, was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, fool of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked with straight powers of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you be blind and you will see the sight of time. There is a twofold expression to his to reaction. To Edimas trying to turn the proconsul away from the field. Firstly, he exposes the, the work of the devil in this man. He calls him out, says, You son of the devil. It is you who are of the devil's work. You 
who are speaking the way of Satan. You are an enemy of righteousness. You are full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? It is so ironic that a man whose name is Bar Jesus, and the word Bar Jesus, Jesus actually means the one who saves, is now to try to turn away Satan's powers from the Lord of salvation. Is therefore converting away. And Paul calls it out immediately. Paul calls it out immediately. So sometimes Christians really need to understand this that the God whom we serve is not only a God who provides comfort, but He's also a God who confronts any form of compromise, any form of perversion, any form of hidden in the gospel message. And if a church is a church that operates in the prophetic spirit, we must be able to see that. There are many things, some blatant, some subtle, many times subtle actually, that try to hinder the work of the gospel even in the church. And we must be very clear to see that it does happen. And we must ensure that we are faithful. And we let the Holy Spirit because when the Holy Spirit rebukes, the Holy Spirit will rebuke. As we see here, as Paul is with the Holy Spirit, he calls out this man of his crooked grace and exposing him and now gives him a judgment. So we must be very clear on this. That is not Paul doing his new sentence because that is his character to pronounce judgment after exposing the sin. Or his Paul, who is led by the Spirit, to pronounce judgment. As we have Peter in the early chapters with Ananias and Sapphira, although for this man, at least thankfully for him, he doesn't lead to death. And so after calling out what it is, what he sees as the malicious work of the devil, Try to turn Sergius Paul's book council away. And we have to say that this man is, is a Gentile. Uh, this man is a leader, yeah? uh, a senator leader in a sense, who I am. And now Paul pronounces in the Holy Spirit judgment on Elimas, on Bar Jesus. And so this man who is full of darkness now experiences literal blindness. And it's very interesting how Dr. Wood describes it because if you just look at the English phrase, it says immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. Uh, it almost sounds magical, isn't it? But Dr. Wood actually uses a very well known medical term. He says mist, actually, it is a medical term for the inflammation of the eye that causes the clouding of the eye. So it is interesting that here the supernatural judgment of God results in a medical inflammation of the eye. And Dr. Liu actually uses that particular medical term with the word mist. Okay? So immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to be the right hand. I've reflected thus far on the first point, which is how the Holy Spirit works in bring about specific revelation in commissioning this church mission. And how in this case our spirit, the Holy Spirit calls out, exposes the evil deeds of darkness between the sinful humanity and the devil and pronounces judgment. I reflected on how the church in responding to the work of the Holy Spirit, initiating the work of the Holy Spirit, responds in worship and obedience and steadfastness and being very sensitive to what the Spirit calls them to do in mission. But we see now that the result of this, and this is good for the church to reflect as well, the result of such a powerful confrontation and demonstration is that this whole council believes the gospel. 
when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I have actually met someone who became a Christian because they were astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I have to confess that much of our sharing of the gospel is a lot of persuasion these days. Maybe I'm limited by my experience. But one important aspect of the church that probably we need to be open to, maybe perhaps we're not so open, is to boldly proclaim the gospel and let God work the signs and wonders, whether in terms of miracles or in acts of judgment, so that people will see that we are all of this talk. I remember in my secondary school, people always use this phrase in academies and all their own uh, talk about Jesus. You know, and, and for me, that troubled me because number one, the, the insinuation was that Christianity is just a lot of words. But as we have seen in Scripture, Christianity is the demonstration of God's power according to His word. And the church cannot just be known for words, the church must be known for living out those words. And I don't just mean it in, in terms of values, I don't just mean it in terms of religious fervor. Uh, in terms of operating in the spirit, can can the church say that they have truly been operating in the good spirit? To the point that when someone sees the gospel being preached and God demonstrates his signs and wonders, that they are astonished at the teaching of the Lord. That it's not just about intellectual agreement, not just about the, the values or the message of the gospel, it's heartwarming. There's always a place for that. But I think that we lose a lot of what the gospel is when we feel to if we feel to realize that the gospel is about demonstration of God's power. How did Jesus Christ, not only the key in the past, show that his promises are true by rising from the dead victoriously, not only he poured his Holy Spirit back then, but in the here and now is our Christian faith characterized by God working in our lives, undeniably it is astonishing. Perhaps our lives are not surrendered enough. Perhaps we are keeping too much control. Perhaps we have come to a domesticated expression of the Christian faith. This brings me to my third point. How does the church respond to the reality of the spirit? Because in scripture is clear, God is always working. But it's not working in a particular congregation. It's a congregation yielded in a life of worshiping and fasting. You see here that the fruit of the ministry of the Church of Antioch in sending out money to Paul was very rigid. They stepped out in faith, they grieved the confrontation, they inspired by the Holy Spirit, God promised. The mission to the Gentiles has now it is now expanding to the rest. My prayer for all of this, even as we reflect on this short passage of Leviticus, that we will not domesticate our faith. What does it mean to domesticate your faith? Meaning that you can keep it respectable for your house. It's a faith that is personal, that is private, that is respectable, that is commendable for your house. When people say you're a Christian, means you're a good person, we don't hear people shouting or throwing plates in the house, we don't hear people cursing when you're driving, you drive and you're ready to speak. And that is a domestication of Christian faith. But the Christian faith is actually one that pushes the boundaries. 
there's even offensive in some people's eyes because it is so in your face. And yet it's not just words because of the life that shows in accordance to those words that it will become an astonishing witness. I'm daring you to move in the view of the gospel as I am daring myself to move beyond our comfort zone even in this pandemic. To stop, put, stop putting limitations on ourselves in terms of what our Christian expression should be in the pandemic. To learn to love sacrificially, to learn to preach with the authority of the Holy Spirit, to learn to move in the specific will of the Holy Spirit. Seek God for that as He reveals specific will for you according to His overarching principles as found in His word. Be the Christian who is seeking God. Don't be passive. The experience of the Church of Antiochia is still especially in these times. Maybe in the church like the Church of Antioch at the end of chapter 11, it gives aid to the poor. Maybe in the church like Antioch at the beginning of this chapter 13 as a sending church, as a church that operates the spirit, that view that discerns specific rules. So maybe in the church that sends out people who have been called by God, God has a retreat or gave them from the religious to be recognized them to be acknowledged them. We prepare them, we support them, we restore them. In this sermon, challenging you positively to surrender your lives to God, to dare to move out of the power of the Spirit, to lift and grow in His grace and power. Let us pray. Father, for all that has been preached and commented, used. We lay at your feet for the Holy Spirit to bring into mind everything according to what Jesus has promised. We ask of God as your children not to rejoice in the salvation that we have in Jesus, but to realize of God that it needs to be brought out into the world, that this salvation is to be lived out in an astonishing way, for we that we can demonstrate and we need to be obedient and faithful. In our expression, we pray against any sense of the false expression of the gospel that is domesticating, that just seeks to preserve the status quo. Help us, O God, in our families, in our interactions with colleagues and neighbors and friends, the communities around us, to seek your will, your specific will. In Jesus' name we pray. So, but then.